Thank you very much for that kind introduction, and thank you also for the invitation. I noticed that yesterday was the 51st anniversary of the passing of the most reverend Clarence Elwell, who was the eighth Bishop of Columbus, who confirmed me when he was an auxiliary bishop in Cleveland. We also have another Episcopal tie as well. Your sixth bishop, the most reverend Clarence Isenman, came to Cleveland as coadjutor to Archbishop Hoban and later sent me to the North American College, also 51 years ago. While I do not know Columbus very well, I have visited often, especially while three of my seminary classmates were rectors of the Pontifical College Josephinum. Also, two of your priests were co-sponsored by the Archdiocese for the Military Services while seminarians and are now serving Catholics in the military. Father Daniel Swartz, a Navy chaplain in Guam, and Father Christopher Yakel, an Air Force chaplain, assigned to Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, but currently deployed in the Middle East. Thank you for sharing the priceless gift of their priesthood with the men, women, and families who serve our nation. I'm grateful to Bishop Fernandez for his invitation and happy to spend some time with you this afternoon. I'm also very grateful to the organizers for their patience in trying to accommodate my somewhat challenging schedule. Tomorrow, as you know, is the first Sunday of Lent, and I must be back in DC for the rite of election, one of the few archdiocesan events that we actually hold in the chapel at the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center. No doubt, the other speakers have also spoken about the Eucharist, the source and summit of our lives as Catholics, as the Second Vatican Council reminded us. I hope to center my remarks on the Eucharist, a wondrous gift as essential for our growth as members of the body of Christ cultivating a hunger for the Eucharist and being transformed so that we become what we receive and then live in the newness of that transformation. This year, in celebrating the Sacrament of Confirmation, I've been using a double example of lived faith. Two Sicilians beatified by Pope Francis in the face of domination and intimidation by organized crime, Father Giuseppe Pugliese decided to do something. He preached against the mafia, encouraged the young to steer clear of them, would not accept their donations, and refused to allow them to lead the procession on the patronal feast day, and challenged the notion that nothing could be done. He was murdered for his stance in 1993, but his courage 
enabled others to be catalysts for change. The magistrate, Rosario Livitano, Levit Lavatino, a daily communicant, persecuted the leaders of organized crime, would not accept bribes, and refused to be swayed by those who warned him about the dangers. He was shot to death on a highway in 1990. However, his best known saying is a good one for us. He said, when we die, no one will ask how much we believed, but how believable we were. Two individuals, now recognized as blessed by the church, refused to accept the status quo. They actively combated evil and sought to bring about change. They were nourished by the Eucharist, grew in their faith, and allowed Jesus to steal them against evil and transform that faith into heroic action. Most Catholics, I would imagine, remember their first Holy Communion, memorizing the Baltimore Catechism, practicing for hours in the parish church, and singing two hymns in English, excuse me, and learning the two hymns in English to be sung before and after communion at a time when only Latin was used are among the memories of that day 65 years ago next May. The Ursula nuns made certain that we understood who was being received and the solemnity only reinforced that understanding. Something else happened during that school year in the first grade to cement that notion that the Lord was truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. My classmate and I took up the suggestion from our teacher to take advantage of First Friday exposition of the Blessed Sacrament and stop for a visit in the church on the way, on our way home from parochial school. We made a visit for as long as two seven-year-olds can manage and left the church by a side door. Out on the sidewalk, we saw the formidable figure of the principal of the school, Sister St. John, standing at the end of the walk, beckoning us. My classmate and neighbor ran in the other direction as fast as his little legs could carry him. He even crossed the street in the middle. The other boy, your speaker, somewhat more philosophical even at seven years old, figured that whatever was bad on Friday afternoon would only be worse on Monday morning. Certainly the principal must have been calling us for some infraction. Why else would the principal be interested in us? I was the youngest in my family, and I knew that Sister St. John knew who I was and where I lived. I also knew from my older siblings that whatever happened to meet punishment at school would be severely punished at home. I walked over to the principal, only to be turned over to Sister Margaret Mary, who passed away just a few months ago, who led me to the altar server's sacristy and found a cassock that she could hurriedly shorten somewhat 
and a surplus and sent me out on the altar. The tradition in that parish was that four altar boys would watch for half-hour turns between the close of school and rosary and benediction at 7.45. A boy failed to meet his commitment, and it was unthinkable that there would only be three, even if the third, even if the fourth, would be a first grader. That a principal of a school with some 2,000 students and a teacher who would later serve as a principal and on the faculty of their university would be concerned about a missing altar boy said a great deal about the importance they attributed to the real presence of Jesus Christ and the honor that should be paid to that presence. Incidentally, I developed a devotion to the Lord in the Eucharist that has become, that became my preferred source of guidance as I discerned priesthood. And of course, it continues to this day. Even though it is not strictly speaking a rubric, I always imitate St. John Paul's practice of genuflecting after distributing Holy Communion and giving the ciborium our patent to the master of ceremonies. He did that even when physical strength did not accompany him. In John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 53 and 54, we hear, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The words of Jesus in the sixth chapter of St. John are very clear. He tells us what is necessary and basically invites us to share his life with him. Accepting this message was very challenging for his audience 2,000 years ago, and it still challenges us today. Many walked away. And the Lord asked his disciples if they would also leave. To which Peter responded, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The Lord gained divine life for us. His own life, grace. It is enduring an eternal life. The fruit of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which is given to us by faith and baptism. To receive Holy Communion is to receive Christ, the fullness of divine life, so that we might also have it in abundance. We appreciate divine grace. We preserve it as a precious treasure. We defend it from the dangers of the world and the trap of temptations. Allow that desire to reach full maturity in us, to draw us to desire the Eucharist and to participate with joy in the Lord's Supper. Whenever I think of the essential nature of Eucharist for our life of faith, I'm reminded of Cardinal Van Tuan, whom I knew in the 90s when I worked 
for in the Holy See Secretariat of State. In 1976, as the coadjutor Archbishop of Saigon, he was imprisoned and kept in solitary confinement for 12 years. Celebrating the Eucharist was essential for him. And so the faithful smuggled hosts and wine, and he would celebrate Mass from memory with a small section of hosts on his hand and a drop of wine next to it. That daily perfect prayer allowed him to withstand the torments, the solitude, and the persecution he was enduring for the faith. He wrote, it is the power of the Eucharistic mystery that draws people, for it is Jesus himself who offers the sacrifice. I've often wondered how Cardinal Pell spent all of those months in solitary confinement without the benefit of the Eucharist. It also seemed cruel that the prison authorities would not allow him that possibility. Why such cruelty? The servant of God, Father Emile Capon, a priest of Wichita, experienced the same privation during his time as a prisoner of war in North Korea in 1950. However, he managed to animate his fellow captives and combat the brainwashing techniques used by the enemy to try and shake their resolve and subjugate them. Many of his fellow prisoners of war identified him as the reason they survived. We hope to see him raised to the altars soon. The Catechism of the Catholic Church helps us to understand the Eucharistic mystery. And I quote, the Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life. The other sacraments, indeed, all ecclesial, ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. It continues, the Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in divine life and that unity of the people of God by which the church is kept in being. It is the culmination both of God's actions sanctifying the world in Christ and of the worship people offer to Christ and through him to the Father and the, in the Holy Spirit. Finally, the Catechism adds, by the Eucharistic celebration, we already unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church in the West, there have been attempts to water down our faith in the Eucharist. One of the reasons for the signs and gestures we use when we reserve the Eucharist is to reaffirm that belief in the real presence. We use beautiful tabernacles, the vigil light, the genuflection, splendid monstrances, and Eucharistic devotions, 
all testify to our belief and to the challenges that have been made in the past. While in the Eastern Church, there is certainly reverence for the Blessed Sacrament, it is much simpler, because in that church, faith in the real presence was not questioned. The, their challenges were others. For instance, the iconoclasts who destroyed icons and images. The servant of God, Catherine Deuc, Doherty, described well what happens at Mass, and I quote, For the Mass is the very breath of our spiritual life. There we are, face to face with the Lord of hosts. There we become one with him. Then, refreshed and strengthened beyond our understanding, we are once more, we once more can face whatever the day may bring. In the Mass, we find bread and wine for the soul. We find love bending down to us. Love lifting us ever higher to himself until all things are right and well with us. For we have our being in him already on this earth. The Mass is the sum total of our prayer life. Of course, one of the challenges for the Archdiocese for the Military Services is assuring the celebration of the Eucharist for the men and women in uniform and their families. The U.S. military has a global presence, and yet there are only 190 priests on active duty as chaplains. Other priests supplement the shortage, but their access is restricted. For example, just recently, the good Korean priest ministering to the naval base in Chennai, in Korea, was prevented from celebrating Mass because his contract was not in order. That is, he was essentially volunteering, but the Anti-Deficiency Act of 19, of, excuse me, of 1884 basically forbids donating services for which one is normally paid. My chancellor will do his best to ensure all of the proper paperwork, but bureaucracy takes time. Let me assure you that the military bureaucracy makes that of the church look simple. I've decided we only won wars because people made decisions and then asked for permission later. Otherwise, we'd still be waiting to invade Normandy. During the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, priests traveled constantly to offer mass on forward operating bases and risked their lives to bring this essential gift to others. Nothing replaced the ability to participate in the sacrifice of the mass. It is significant, for example, that the only chaplain to die of his wounds in the Iraq war was Father Timothy Vakash, a priest of St. Paul in Minneapolis, and an army chaplain. He was on his way to celebrate mass at a forward operating base when a roadside bomb exploded. He lived for a few years, 
but eventually succumbed to complications from those wounds. It can never be forgotten that he was wounded on his way to provide mass for others. Some years later, his sister entrusted his chalice to me, and I have entrusted it to an army chaplain who will be ordained in June. It is almost as if the mission to provide the sacrifice of the mass is being passed on those to those who can continue the mission to feed those hungering for the body and blood of the Lord. That is my second theme this afternoon. We cultivate a hunger for the Eucharist so that we can appreciate the divine guest who enters us. When we are nourished by Christ's, Christ in word and sacrament, we can walk with him to everlasting life. However, however we have to experience a need, a hunger for word and sacrament. You know, we tried to provoke this experience a little bit with the Eucharistic fast. There might be a few other gray heads here that remember when the fast was from midnight. Few people went to communion at Mass, especially the later ones on Sunday. Fainting at Mass was not uncommon. Not a few little children ended up postponing First Holy Communion because they drank water that morning. In fact, parents used to put towels or rugs over sinks to remind the children. Perhaps it was an exaggeration. But by means of our preparation, it did illustrate the importance, the desire, and the union with the sacrifice of Christ. People prepared well and desired to be able to receive Holy Communion. For that reason, in 1958, when the servant of God, Pope Pius XII, relaxed the discipline to just three hours, he recommended to everyone who could that this useful and opportune practice of fasting from midnight be continued. The same thing happened in 1964, when the three hours were changed to the one that we have now. More is always recommended. But I suspect that most Catholics do not think about the fact that an hour of fasting before receiving Holy Communion is the minimum, and that it is possible to do more. So often, obligations and even morality are reduced to the minimum. Today's almost symbolic fast is not primarily a ritual purification of mouth and body, or even an invitation to recognize that Eucharistic food is different from ordinary food. But it is an attempt to recall a desire, a longing, a search for the only satis spiritually satisfying food. We must experience a necessity, a hunger, a desire which is so intense that only the bread of life can satisfy it. To excite this necessity in others, we must experience it ourselves. The same can be said for the practice of fasting. Once mandated for ember days and vigils of great solemnities, but now reduced to Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, 
and recommended up to the Easter vigil. Fasting is an invitation to cultivate a hunger for eternal life. It is concrete and a felt reminder that life does not end here. You and I are baptized into eternal life so as to be readied to be citizens of heaven. The notion of creating a hunger is connected to the notion of creating a desire, a longing, and a need for that life which does not end. It is not a concept that is particularly popular today. We live in a world where all energy and desire are concentrated on right now. We'd say in Latin, hic et nunc. Immediate gratification is expected. Amazon Prime will send your order in 24 hours. I do not wait. Fast food makes certain that, I can, that we can eat almost immediately. It's not my place here to talk about the quality of the food, but it is ready at the drop of a hat. So much buttresses the idea that this world is the goal and that we are not on a journey to the fullness of life. Linked to that is the idea of rewarding presence. One challenge with, military, with the military recruiting for personnel is the existence of rigor, expectations, discipline, and certain standards. Frequently, the younger generation expects a reward for showing up, the t-shirt for being there, or the consolation trophy. The same mentality has been seen recently on university campuses where students object to being challenged by speakers with whom they might disagree or the notion of truth as opposed to my truth. Dr. Eric Aldler, a classics professor at the University of Maryland, summarized the situation in a Washington Post article a few years ago. Even at public universities, 18-year-olds are purchasing what is essentially a luxury product. Is it any wonder they feel entitled to control the experience? Students accustomed to authoring every facet of their college experience now want their institutions to mirror their views. If the customers can determine the curriculum and select all of their desired amenities, it stands to reason that they should also determine which speakers ought to be invited to campus and what opinions can be articulated in their midst. For today's student, one might say, speakers are amenities. One might add that you choose yours, but only if they agree with my tastes. Otherwise, I will protest and make certain that no one will hear ideas with which I disagree. Where is the search for truth? How can I learn to think, to grow, and to preach the gospel if I only listen to one side of any question? Yes, we must hunger to be satiated by the only food that lasts and gives life. 
we believe that the Eucharist transforms us so that we become what we receive and then live in the newness of that transformation. We are fortunate. We do not have to accomplish this journey and transformation alone. We walk with Christ. In this time when there is so much talk about synodality, it is essential to remember that sin with hodos, way, means that we walk, first of all, with Christ. He is the ultimate companion, the sure fellow traveler with whom we make our way. Otherwise, as Pope Francis reminds us, the process would be no different than a parliament or a congress with partisan agenda and opposing factions. Here we are reminded of the opening words of the pontificates of St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and I quote, No, if we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free, beautiful, and great. No, only in this friendship are the doors opened wide. Only in this friendship is the great potential of human existence truly revealed. Only in this friendship do we experience beauty and liberation. And so I say to you, do not be afraid of Christ. He takes nothing away. He gives you everything. When we give ourselves to him, we receive a hundredfold in return. Yes, open, open wide the doors to Christ and you will find true life. Moreover, we see our participation as a continuation of the Trinitarian celebration and influences everything we do. The Eucharist transforms us for service. As Bishop Albino Luciani, later Pope John Paul I, said, eat, eat of the Eucharist. Partake of that bread and something extraordinary will happen. It is different from what normally takes place. When you eat other bread, you take it, your body transforms it, you dominate it by assimilation, a little bit at a time. The bread is transformed into you. However, this other bread is stronger than you are. Therefore, you are incapable of working on it, of dominating it by assimilation, of transforming it. It will be the bread that works on you. It will dominate you by assimilation. It will transform you. A little bit at a time, you will be what that bread is. If you let it happen, if you give it freedom to act. St. John Henry Newman helps us to discover the strength we need to defend our faith in the face of opposition. He wrote about St. Benedict and monasticism in the West. And he said, St. Benedict found the world physical and social in ruins. And his mission was to restore it in a way not of science, but of nature. Not professing to do it by any set time or by any rare specific or by any series of strokes 
but so quietly, patiently, gradually. Silent men were observed about the country, discovered in the forest, digging, clearing, and building. And other silent men, not seen, were sitting in the cold cloister, tiring their eyes and keeping their attention on the stretch while they painfully deciphered and copied and recopied the manuscripts of which they saved. There was no one that contended or cried out or drew attention to what was going on, but by degrees, the woody swamp became a hermitage, a religious house, a farm, an abbey, a village, a seminary, a school of learning, and a city. The sainted English author and cardinal also points out that frequently invaders came and destroyed the results of these painstaking years in an hour's time. But it was not the end. The monks began anew and rebuilt what had been destroyed and advanced civilization. They did not take vengeance or remember evil, but renewed the place. The monks and the nuns were bright lights in an age of political chaos, cultural decay, unbridled violence, and the collapse of an empire. Yes, transformed and not discouraged. When Pope Benedict came to the United States, he reminded us that we are a people of hope, and consequently, we lead different lives. We cannot fear standing out because of what we believe. We cannot be so eager to conform to the world that we resist the power of the Eucharist to transform us. When Cardinal Sara was the very young Archbishop of Conakry in Guinea, West Africa, I met him in Abidjan, where I was the secretary to the nunciature. For years, we had a running joke because the dictator, Sekou Toré, who exiled his predecessor and wanted to kill him, died while being treated at the Cleveland Clinic. I told him that the city of Cleveland had done him and his nation a great favor. At any rate, in his book, The Day Is Now Far Spent, he recalls a passage from the Pensée of Pascal. And I quote, all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact. They cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. The Cardinal continues, the philosopher neatly shows that the human person in his or her pride and concupiscence can find interior peace and genuine happiness only in God. According to him, the broken relationship between the human person and his creator is what produces in a human being constant disaffection, excuse me, constant dissatisfaction with the life he is leading and the desire to forget through diversions that he is mortal. He concludes as follows. As we are not able to fight against death, misery, ignorance, we have taken it into our heads in order to be happy not to think of them at all. 
we learn, we relearn basic virtues such as honesty, to tell the truth and to live by that truth. It is not easy because deception is so frequent. Yet nothing will change if we are unwilling to be witnesses. St. Paul said it so clearly. St. Paul VI said it so clearly. People do not easily listen to teachers, but if a teacher is a witness, then they will be heard. The other day, a seminarian asked me quite naturally what to do with money, because growing up and having jobs, he just contributed to the welfare of his large family. I imagine that his openness and eagerness not to be dominated by money or possessions is not common. You know, the Swiss Guard has a problem recruiting candidates. At an earlier time, Swiss Catholic farming families were large, and the boys shared one room and the girls another. An opportunity to live in Rome for two to four years appealed to these young men. But then progress and gentrification arrived. Families shrunk. And the idea of going to Rome and bunking with two or three other guards was not so appealing. Sacrifice can become a foreign concept. Here again, we allow the Lord's presence within us to open our hearts, to look beyond the mirror, and to enter into the process of transformation. The Lord holds out what is best for us, but never violates his gift of free will. We have to be willing to allow divine grace to mold us continually into sanctity. Another author identified this notion of transformation in a very direct and powerful way and invited us to ask questions. We can only desire this love and prepare ourselves for its reception. In antiquity, those who had had fallings out had to be reconciled and forgive each other before taking part in the church assembly. Everything human had to be fulfilled so that God could reign in the heart. And to prepare ourselves means to ask ourselves, do we go to the liturgy for his love of Christ? Do we go as people who hunger and thirst, not only for help and consolation, but for the fire that burns away all of our weaknesses, all our limitations, and illumines us through the love of Christ? I began with the example of the Sicilian priest and magistrate. Their familiarity with the Lord and their daily reception of the Eucharist gave them the courage to reject complacency, 
to attempt a transformation of society and to endure the persecution and the eventual execution by organized crime. We are not taking numbers to be eliminated, but we should be hungry to grow, to be nourished, and to be transformed by our participation in the one life-giving sacrifice that gives us food for eternal life. Allow me to leave you with just a few questions for your meditation, either this day or during Lent. First of all, reread the Bread of Life discourse in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. Or consider how you cultivate your own authentic Eucharistic piety. Do I long for the bread of life? Am I hungry for this life-giving bread? Am I eager to prepare myself so as to be able to share that bread with others? Or have I cultivated a sense of a worthy and joyful celebration of the Eucharist? Or again, what do I bring to the celebration of the Eucharist? How has the Eucharist transformed me? Do I allow that unique presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ to work on me and to assimilate me to him? Thank you, and God bless you.